Welcome to Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. On the show, our team of industry experts interviews contingency fee attorneys. You will discover everything from how they got started to the secrets of their success and what's working in today's marketplace. And now, here's the Case Closed Podcast. Well, welcome to the Case Closed Podcast. I am your host, Michael Clannon, and today my guest is Matt Long with Long and Simmons Law in Phoenix area. And so I want to thank you, Matt, for joining us and agreeing to be on our podcast. And hopefully our listeners will learn a lot about you and your practice and how you help your clients. Hi, Michael. Good to be with you and look forward to the conversation. Yeah. So Matt, I have a, a bio of you, but it's pretty long. But you know, I just I like to have my listeners share about themselves and their practice, personal, whatever you you feel obligated to share, and then we'll go through some questions that I've prepared uh, for our listeners to get to know you. Yeah, you bet. I'm uh, I, I do practice in Arizona, and my practice does um, until all of Arizona, although we're based in the Maricopa County area, the Phoenix area. You know, I'm a, I'm an Arizona kid. I was a Tempe kid and a Mesa father, uh, been here all my life. So I'm, I enjoy the heat, enjoy golf and enjoy the sun devils. <laughs> well, that's great. So how did you get into the area of law that you're in? Yeah. Um, I started with a, with a mentor, uh, in high school, really, where I was reviewing, uh, capital, uh, appeals as a student uh, reviewer uh, with a I call him mentor, but it's just kind of a a family friend, uh, just a a good person to have in your life who kind of gave gave advice. And uh, growing up, I loved L.A. law and thought I wanted to be a a lawyer because of that. You know, the Harry Hamblin, Corbin Burnson, and it was because they were trial lawyers and they were in there getting information and they seemed to know more than everybody else in the room. And that, that interested me. And everybody in my life told me I was a uh, constant arguer. And so it seemed that with that and writing and speaking a little bit that I had the aptitude for that. But my, my mentor said that the only people that are really happy in the law that he's found are the people that do trials, Mm -hmm. Um, usually criminal. And so that was my path where I did a lot of pretty um, complex um, cases that resulted in in trial. Um, in law school, I was uh, what's called a Truman Young Fellow, uh, which means the third year I was able to work as a student attorney rather than go to law rather than attend classes. Mm -hmm. So it was a um, it was a fellowship which was credits. Uh, I got paid and and a tuition waiver. But when I walked out of law school. Um, I had over 20 trials under my belt, and including uh, about 10 jury trials. And so that kind of set uh, me on my path of dealing with uh, those cases that at least had those issues that required uh, a courtroom, a trial, um, jurors and judges um, which are unique cases because not many cases go to trial and there's not really that many real trial attorneys anymore. Wow. So you practiced both criminal law and personal injury law. What um, unique experiences and rewards come with handling cases in, in these two diverse areas? Yeah, you know, you say diverse, and and what I found is they're not that diverse. They're really they're really relevant. So in 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 my uh, my firm, we deal with 
cars, sex, guns, and violence. And really, it comes down down to that. A lot of my career has been in the uh, what we call persons crimes, the child crimes area. So I became really um, knowledgeable and and dealing with certain medical experts, right? Uh, shaken baby syndrome, the the mechanism of injury, uh, the different types of, of of way that a body would be injured by any violent act. And as part of that, I was also doing um, homicide cases, and a lot of that included some vehicular cases. So I went out on the scenes and got to see, you know, firsthand um, car accidents, some, a lot more serious ones, sometimes resulting in, in deaths and in multiple deaths. But there's a connection between uh, personal injury, especially personal injury related to uh, vehicle cases, um, violent crimes, sex, uh, sex, sexual abuse cases. Um, and criminal, because it really is about being able to prove who done it and how bad was it. And it's about mental state. It's about injury. It's about all these things. And so there is really a one-to-one uh, between the types of cases that we handle criminally and the types of cases that we handle in personal injury. Because at some point, it really is about power structures. And, you know, the government really has a ton of power. And it's, when I say government, I'm really talking about the lobbyists. And so there's the connection between PI because insurance companies have a ton of influence over our government and our laws and our politicians. So there really becomes, it, it seems diverse, but when you really break it down to the issues, it's basically the same approach, the same evidentiary approach uh, with just a different legal standard and different mental state wow yeah how everything is connected like you're looking at it's really not connected it is all intertwined it's the same thing right the car accident comes in i've effectively got a bad actor and mm -hmm. someone who was harmed if you want to use the word victim that's fine i don't like the word for a lot right. of reasons but you have someone who done something wrong and someone who been done wrong and now it's a question is, can we use the law? Can we use the justice system in order to get some sort of uh, effect and have, have there be a consequence, both sometimes it's a negative consequence, sometimes it's a, it's a positive consequence, depending on what role uh, you're in. Right. And so it's a, it's a really is just, a, just an approach of trying to deal with the real world of tragedy. Because all these things we deal with, these, these street crimes, these, these mind crimes, these body crimes, and these, these events are people who aren't used to dealing with tragedies being forced to do so. And you add a layer of the justice system, which is, you know, unless you're in it, can be really confusing, can be really challenging. You know, our job is to simply help people navigate the realities of life. And what's life? Life ends up being about, you know, the death, sex, drugs, and violence. Wow. Hey, how did you, um, how did your early trial experience, you know, as you mentioned, as the 20, 2002 Truman Young Fellow um, during law school shape your approach to becoming a trial attorney? Well, it primarily I got I got real good advice from I got the opportunity to train with some of the best trial attorneys in the country um, and that's that's a matter of public record um, not, not, that's not just hyperbole right. and I'm not going to name drop but I could no. but what I learned early on was to seek the truth and endure the consequences 
And that meant in order to be a good advocate, in order to be an effective advocate, you had to be right about the position you were advocating. Otherwise, you just look like a fool and you look like you're trying to mislead somebody. And so that was the first principle is that any position you take and are either asked to take, you decide to take, right? Because every attorney basically decides to take a case. You look for the argument, the facts, the evidence that's based in reality so you can advance them nobly. And that just means honestly and accurately. And whether I'm defending the worst of the worst, which I do, you know, I I handle death penalty cases. I handle death penalty cases as a prosecutor. I handle death penalty cases as a, uh, as a defense attorney, some of the most complicated cases. And people say, well, how do you do that? Right. Is a, is is a, is a question. Well, I do it nobly. I do it uh, honestly. And I find the arguments based on facts, reason, and evidence in order to advance those, those arguments. So that's the, that's the way that early trial work instructs trial work today is don't be a BS artist like many attorneys are viewed. And with a little bit of, of, of investigation, knowledge, experience, it's pretty easy to find the right hook, the right argument in order to advance the best arguments based on facts and evidence on behalf of your client. I've never asked this with, with an attorney, so you're my guinea pig, but how do you separate, let's just say you're, you're representing somebody and you really don't agree with what they did personally. How can you represent somebody but keep your personal judgment so it's not a conflict of interest? Does that make sense? I, I think so. And it's, it's a common question we get. And again, I was... Um, I've done, I I did prosecution at a very advanced level where I was, uh, you know, uh, prosecuting uh, murderers, um, sex offenders, um, child abusers, right? Some of what we'd say are the worst of the worst. And now I defend the worst uh, of the worst. So how do you do it? I mean, for me, it really is uh, viewing our things like due process in the Constitution as not just fundamental, but really sacred. And that these concepts, it's not just that everybody deserves a a defense, it's that when the government comes in and charges somebody, they are imposing some of the most terrifying and and incredible power that exists. And so I see it as, you know, when I'm, uh, when I was a prosecutor, I viewed being the person that stands between me, you know, that I'm the person that's standing between the offender and a kid, which was often the case. Right. But now, as I've gotten uh, more experienced and, and um, understand things a little more holistically, I'm really standing between that kid that grew up and is now doing very destructive things to them and other people and the government who would punish them for it. And the government and the education system and the judges and whomever that didn't give these children resources to help them overcome what they experienced as victims. So in many ways, it's very, very easy because the kids that I was representing or was was advocating uh, for on behalf of the state are now the same people who have grown up and are and are doing mm-hmm. destructive things. And so that combination of really believing in actually in the concept of due process and right. the, the checks of power, um, you know, pr- the principalities, right? Uh, very concerned with um, uh, police, 
prosecutors and politicians and the manner in which they impose their will on the lives of families. And so that's why it's very simple. It's not about what they've done. I render to Caesar that which is that which is Caesar, and to God that which is God's. If you want to talk about what someone did, well, that's an interesting philosophical question. I'm more interested in what they can prove they did with the types of evidence and the types of investigation that everyone would demand if they were accused of something or if they were, you know, in a situation. And really, in in personal injury. The same thing happens because the people that are injured and the people that are in, in an accident are viewed by the insurance companies and in some cases the criminal or the, the justice system as fraudsters. Mm -hmm. They think that these are just greedy, uninjured people who are lying about the extent of their injuries or lying about you know how it's impacted them. And so my clients on the PI side are similarly being accused by the insurance adjusters of being fraudsters. Mm -hmm. And so when you look at that approach, because it is what's happening, and it's very, yeah. very easy simply to say, let's take an investigative approach, an evidentiary approach to be able to demonstrating with evidence that my guy, my girl, my, my client mm -hmm. is in fact accurately advancing the position that they're taking. One may be, I didn't do it. One may be, I was falsely accused. One may be the police with their power screwed up enough and so bad that we ought not convict. One may be that the prosecutors are overzealous and aren't approaching their the case with the way they ought to, or that the politicians erred in what they say ought to be punished or the legislature or the insurance companies, right? Because let's be candid, insurance companies are a component of the legislature, are wrong in the manner in which they evaluate these facts or these laws. And we can find a different hook in order to advance what really happened. And so that's simple. It's simple right. when you take that approach. Um, you know, I, I think I view myself some, sometimes as a combination between a uh, a moral philosopher and a trial tactician. And so along with that, I've learned that most people simply aren't as bad as we portray them. And most people are far from as good as we portray them. And that reality mm -hmm. actually makes my job quite easy. Most cops aren't bad. Right. Most cops also aren't good. Most cops are lazy. Most teachers aren't bad. Most teachers aren't good. Most teachers are lazy. Same with prosecutors. Um, same with same with politicians. Mm -hmm. They they get the role. They get you know, same with parents. How about that? Right. <laughs> yeah. It's really we call good people good simply because they didn't do violence to us. But we're fine if they do violence to our enemy or somebody that's a stranger. So it becomes, it becomes a question of mythology, really, of story. It's who we categorize as the victim, the villain, the hero, the stranger, and the reporter. And it's who the reporter is that I find so interesting because it's a question of how reliable is their report. And that's where the magic happens in our job, where we investigate the reliability of the reporter.
And from there you get to the issue and then it really doesn't matter what the person did or didn't do because we can deal with facts and evidence and that's the universe we work in. And I'll let the, uh, the uh, pastors and the, and the priests and whomever else deal with, you know, existential questions of, of what actually happened. I deal in evidence facts right. uh, in our systems of proof which is really due process. They matter and they get us to a really, really interesting place, even they, though they don't always get us to, quote unquote, the right place. Right. Thanks for sharing that. I, I enjoy your passion in all of that. You know, like I said, I've never asked an attorney about that, but that was, thank you. I appreciate that. Seriously. And I You're hope welcome. our listeners do too. Um, so, and you kind of mentioned a little about this, so this may be a little redundant, but so your background includes prosecuting serious crimes, as you've mentioned. Yeah. Street okay. crimes, violent crimes, some of the right. most complex. Yeah. So like crimes, homicide yeah. and death penalty cases. What drove you to focus on defending individuals and seeking justice outside the prosecutor's office? Yeah, well, um, sometimes you prosecution prosecutors are the ultimate politicians. And they're the ultimate politicians in Arizona because they're elected. And, you know, you serve at the pleasure of the county attorney. And, you know, you, sometimes when you have to, you know, and I had the opportunity to, you know, make the sausage and see how things work behind the scenes and be in the rooms, you know, there's Hamilton, right? The room where it happens. Right. And sometimes you find that villains exist in the rooms where they claim to be the heroes. And that was certainly the case with a, a county attorney that I worked for. And again, it's a matter of public record who that is and what, what right. he did and the political motivations. And what I saw particularly was this improper marriage between police and prosecutors. Whereas when I first started, um, there was this check and balance that the prosecutors uh, provided a check and balance to the police. And that stopped being the case in Arizona. And so I saw that might be, um, I also viewed myself based on that as less of a, you know, we, we say prosecutors wear the white hat, right? right? And I found that was the case, except it might have been a white helmet. I was possibly a stormtrooper. Hmm. And like the stormtroopers, boy, they shoot a lot, but they don't hit their target very often. And I found that too often it was about going and getting and punishing the person that was easy to get rather than the person who really needed to be got. Mm -hmm. And I saw a complete change, especially in the, in the most violent crimes. And my particular area was in um, sex crimes for most of my career. Because I saw the investigations wanting. And I saw the manner in which the prosecutors were um, taking cases to trial troubling. And so it was very easy to transition and, and do defense work in order to continue to train law enforcement and continue to train prosecutors and in many ways continue to help support victims by doing defense work and ensuring the system could be held accountable because it wasn't being accountable being held accountable by the prosecutors and the elected officials who were married policy-wise to law enforcement. And that was happening and continues to happen too often 
um, in Arizona and I'm sure other parts of the uh, of the country. Now, fortunately, I was also able to continue in private practice now to represent victims in civil cases and uh, do investigations and advance uh, cases related to you know the the sexual misconduct, sexual offenses uh, by offenders and institutions that provide um, cover, support, and protection for the offenders of of certain crime. And so I do both of those uh, now now here, and that that's certainly been a challenge. And I found that the victims ultimately don't have a whole lot of resources uh, in that realm. And so that's very easily why I was able to move to the move to the other side and um, essentially do the same thing I was doing as a prosecutor, asking the same questions, challenging the police, just as I would as a prosecutor, except before I would challenge the police and say, go get more evidence so that we can make this easy so that we can build a wall of evidence around this victim. And now it's going into court and challenging the cops and saying, you didn't go get this type of evidence. You violated your policies. You violated best practices. And as a result, you did not provide this jury with enough evidence in order to make a decision. And they should punish you for it by finding this person not guilty. So again, it's the same approach, just a, uh, just a, a slightly different venue where I get to utilize my investigation and advocacy skills. Right. Can you share with us one of the, one case, I mean, there's probably a case out there that you you think back on, or either it was a turning point in your career, or it was a, you know, a challenge to do or made an impact. Absolutely. I mean, there's there's been a number of them. And anytime you have to talk to a kid about some of the most intimate, violent, and complex experiences that they have, whether they're a witness or whether they're a victim. That impacts you. And you get insight when you really get to get into the mind of a child that has to deal with the uh, criminal justice system, including the children of, of, of the accused. So that's the first thing, just, just I'll say as a, almost as an archetype, right, yeah. as an amalgamation. Yeah. But the one that really impacted me the most was cases related to um, clergy, the institutional abuse and the manner in which certain clergy um, religions and churches are protected in their role as uh, a religion when sexual abuse in particular occurs. And there was a, a, a number of cases I was involved with as, as what's called my app counsel, or I was a consulting attorney in, uh, in some cases around the country. And that, that is an area that I, that I, that's one of my practice areas is I do training. I, I am a testifying expert on some issues. Um, and I do provide consultation on um, criminal related stuff, especially sex crimes throughout the country. And one of the areas that I provided particular um, I guess I had particular experience in was related to assault lake based um, religion. And there's current litigation going on uh, that I was involved with and that other attorneys were, were involved with. And in that, they made a very legal um, argument that they don't have a duty to protect the children of their members and donors. And it's a legal question. And for me, it was fascinating and, and, and a little troubling because they enjoy the benefits, the legal benefits um, of what's called a clergy exception, which the government grants these institutions 
the church that, that's out of the uh, out of out of Italy, out of the Vatican, as well as the uh, church that's based out of Salt Lake City, are the two largest and primary ones that enjoy a clergy exception to mandatory reporting laws, where everyone, you know, doctors, psychologists, um, teachers, cops, these are all mandatory reporters that they find out about abuse, and clergy members do too, because these are people who um, are most likely to to get told something by a child that they're being harmed. Well, these two churches, and in Arizona, there is a clergy exception that says that if a clergy member of one of these institutions finds out about the abuse, they don't have to report legally. So they have this legal um, exception that's a benefit. And they're claiming when they say you you, uh, didn't do what you could have done to protect this child, they say, but we don't have a legal duty to protect them. And that became an interesting legal question because what it effectively says is that the laws of Arizona protect the children from those religious institutions differently than it does the children in other religious institutions or those who may not have a religious affiliation. And that changed my approach to life and it changed my approach to the law primarily because now I talk to victims all the time and explain to them why suing an institution is a big challenge. Now I've been talking about lobbying earlier and, and, and insurance companies. Do you see the connection between lobbyists, the legislature, pastors, and politicians? So they're granted these protections and these legal rights, And with that right, they say they don't have a duty. And that instructs me as it relates to how the justice system works, Mm -hmm. how legislatures actually work, how policies are affected, and how ultimately we're comfortable in sacrificing our children in the name of policy. And how frustrating is that? And is there any way in the future to overcome this so these groups don't have these protections or exemptions? Well, the best way is for people to be aware of the inequity and the different approaches and to demand that their legislatures protect all children the same. Now there's also maybe some legal issues that could happen. And um, me and some other attorneys, myself and other attorneys may be involved in looking into um, that as to how we might be able to address it from a First Amendment challenge, saying that maybe these children have a claim that they can raise in courts, Mm -hmm. saying that these laws ought to be changed from a constitutional perspective. That's one thing that, that may happen. These victims may also have a cause of action against their uh, the, their elected officials and the um, politicians and individuals that are um, also involved in, in the system. So there's a couple ways that we can do. We can do it by encouraging um, change or we go to the courts and we uh, say that it's either unconstitutional, the current laws, or that a person ought to be punished because there must be someone out there that has a duty to protect children. And maybe the only people that have a duty to protect children are, in fact, parents, because that's the case. So maybe we have victims that need to simply sue their parents for failing to protect them and failing to um, 
meet their duty to children. And maybe if enough of that happens, that that will create enough noise to change the mandatory reporting laws as it relates to clergy exceptions in Arizona and other states. Now, not all states are the same way. This is Arizona. This is Utah, Idaho. It's generally the states where certain religious institutions have particular influence and control over the politicians. Wow. (laughs) I I mean, you know, the thing is, the general public, they don't know what they don't know, right? Sure. (laughs) You know, the insurance companies do a really good job of, of, of establishing a mythology, a false narrative, right? Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Well, they ain't a good neighbor. You know, they do a good job of promoting every situation where somebody has committed insurance fraud or, or lied or, or misstated. And they do a really good job of misstating and misleading um, things about facts that, you know, may not be true. The, the, the McDonald's coffee case, case is one everybody knows about. Yeah. Right. Sure. Oh, my gosh. What a travesty. Well, that was advanced by the insurance company. But you really break down the facts. McDonald's was was holding that um, coffee at a, a, a temperature that was irresponsible. And it was different than virtually every other retail establishment in the area. And had they kept that temperature at the levels that the other businesses and restaurants were, and that that woman had um, spilled, there wouldn't be injury. Mm -hmm. So that's the case. That's a factual case that nobody hears about. And the award that was given by the jury was actually reduced by the judge. Um, as well. So that person didn't get that big of an award. But the insurance company advanced a narrative that says, wow, this person is, uh, has done something wrong. And so we, there's this presumption out there. There's this idea. If you sue, you're a bad person. You're a greedy person. And so the insurance company has done a phenomenal job convincing people not to talk to attorney or hire or hire an attorney because they'll be the greedy ones. They'll be the bad one. And churches do the same thing. They do a great job advancing a narrative that they're there to help. They're there to protect. They're there to do all these, all these things, right? Police do a great job of that. Mm-hmm. That protect and serve is a marketing thing. It's not a duty. It's not a, you know, it's a mission statement. We'd like this to happen, but when they get sued, they say, that's not a, that's not our, that's not our duty. Our duty is to enforce. We have qualified immunity. And so it's these principalities that constantly advance false narratives that the rank and file people just have come to accept culturally and and societally when it's not consistent with what the real world is like. Wow. Yeah. Well, hey, Matt, we're coming to a close, but is there anything that you, anything else that you would like to share with our listeners about you or your practice or anything? You know, we, we like what we do. We do, uh, we have a very particular practice, a very particular, um, you know, area of, of, of expertise and experience. It's me and my partner. You know, if you hire us, you get us. Uh, my partner also is just one of the most uh, experienced and knowledgeable um, trial attorneys in, in Arizona. And I think the, the main message I'd, I'd send to people is it really is a tragedy when you have to be dealing with, well, crime scenes or courtrooms. 
And when something happens that requires a police to get called out, whether it's an accident report, whether it's a crime or anything else, that is a big deal. And getting accurate information about the real world is the best path to navigating that tragedy. And too many people look for uh, people who give them the answer they want. And that results in a lot of aggravation, a lot of stress, and a lot of conflict. And so, you know, wherever you are, vet your attorney, get a second opinion. There's a reason why it's the practice of law. Too many people make decisions because they just don't want to make a decision and they have to. And so they rush to the first attorney that they get access to because they just don't want to think about it. And more error has happened through that than finding the right attorney by vetting them and asking questions. Always get a second opinion before you hire an attorney. Right. Pretty simple. Make sure it's a good fit. And you're working with an attorney and that expertise, right? Not, not a general practitioner. That's right. And ask questions about how long they've been doing it, the types of cases they've actually handled. Too many people are good at, at holding themselves out as, uh, as having expertise because they use BS words. But when you really dig into that, they haven't done what they claim to have done. They don't have the actual, you know, they haven't spilt the actual mud in actual mm -hmm. blood. They've heard of stories and they re regurgitate stories, but they're telling stories about other people. Right. When you come to our firm, we don't tell stories about other people. We tell you stories about what we've done and other people end up telling stories about us. Right, right, great. Um, how do our listeners find you? Yeah, so our website, uh, best way, right? The internet is uh, longandsimmonslaw.com. Um, they can also get uh, information that, uh, that we provide about cars, sex, guns, and violence on our podcast, which is Prosecuting Mind Crime, because every tragedy ends up doing violence to the mind. Wow, great. I didn't know you had a podcast. I'll have to check it out. And hopefully our listeners will too. So, well, thanks for joining us um, on this podcast, uh, Matt. And hopefully, you know, some people have learned a little about you and your practice. And, you know, if they ever need help, hopefully they think of you and that. But this has been Michael Clannon, your Case Closed podcast host, uh, along with Matt Long with Long and Simmons Law in Phoenix, Arizona. And so if you want to learn more about him, just go to longandsimmonslaw.com. And we'll look forward to hearing or seeing you on our next Case Closed podcast. Thank you, Matt. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast. We hope you enjoyed listening to this week's guests and their insight. If you liked what you heard, please consider subscribing wherever you listen to podcasts. Case Closed, the Contingency Fee Podcast is led by industry experts who unlock insights from the nation's top contingency fee attorneys. Each week on the show, the guests share how they got started, secrets of their success, and what's working in today's marketplace. Guests on the Case Closed podcast include successful contingency fee attorneys that will share their secrets so you can close more cases. Tune in each week for a dynamic conversation about winning legal strategies that will grow your business.